Chapter 8, The Victor. Judas Christopher, leader of the United World Empire, sat at the head of a long oak table with his governing council around him. The council consisted of his inner circle of advisors as well as heads of various governmental departments. Seated behind the table were representatives from the major world nations chosen for their influence within their countries. All of them had pledged allegiance to Christopher and had accepted the universal number required to participate in the worldwide economy. President Christopher had grown increasingly belligerent as the meeting went on, breaking into bestial rants that chilled his subordinates. Every person in the room knew the cause of his displeasure. He was smarting from the defeat of the armies he'd commanded to destroy Israel. The primary targets of his verbal storm were the representatives from Russia, Iran, Egypt, and China, the axis of nations whose armies had failed him. The worst of it fell upon the Russian dignitary Alexander Ivazov, since Russia's generals had directed the campaign. What happened? Christopher bellowed. You were equipped with the most up-to-date weaponry, leading the world's largest, best-trained military force against a paltry excuse of a nation. I even paved the way for your success with the peace treaty I made with those gullible Jews. They had already disarmed. They were practically sitting ducks. How could you possibly have failed? And yet you bumbling fools managed to find a way. Ivazov, red-faced and seething, finally exploded. Can't you see that the loss wasn't our fault? You know very well why we were defeated. We were hit with an earthquake that topped the Richter scale and monstrous hailstones mixed with sulfurous fire. Our armies were decimated. So you say, Christopher's voice was cold as frost. But it wasn't the fire or hail or earthquake that got you, was it? It was panic. Your troops lost their heads and started firing on anything that moved. And the only thing moving was their fellow soldiers running for cover like terrified rabbits. You idiots annihilated your own armies. With all due respect, sir, you were not there. If you had been engulfed in choking, blinding smoke and dust as our troops were, you would understand the confusion. They couldn't even see the sun. As if that weren't enough, a scourge of dysentery swept through, killing half of our men and immobilizing many who remained. Against human foes, we were invincible, but no army on earth has weapons against the disasters we faced. You may soon face even greater foes. I am ordering you and the other nations represented in this room to raise new armies. We will attack Israel again. Silence blanketed the room. After a tense moment, the Russian representative realized that the time he'd feared had come. He must walk the plank. Mr. President, you cannot do this to us. Do you realize how tenuous your hold on the world is? Your string of broken promises, ignored treaties, military conscriptions, and exorbitant taxes have angered many nations. Your tyranny is fostering poverty and disease around the world, and when incidents of rebellion are put down with brutal force, deep resentments fester like a boil. Mr. Ivazov, Christopher's voice was low. If you don't stop your ranting this minute... No, I will not stop. Someone in this room needs to tell you what you refuse to hear. If you demand another conscription after our recent losses, it will trigger massive revolt in the Russian coalition of states. Christopher called for guards to enter the room. Take this traitor out and shoot him. 
He pointed straight at Ivazov. And take his gutless minions with him, he added, gesturing at the representatives from China, Egypt, and Iran. I will not tolerate this kind of insubordination. The guard seized the four dissenters and escorted them out the door. Meanwhile, Christopher continued speaking as if nothing out of the ordinary had occurred. My dear council members, we will build a new coalition of armies and destroy Israel once and for all. This army will be invincible, larger than any military force ever assembled. Each of you will instruct your national leaders to do whatever it takes. Force conscription, plunder your natural resources, nationalize your factories if you need to. Do you understand me? The removal of the four dissenters effectively stifled any debate. Yet the members of the council found themselves caught between two impossible options. If they presented Christopher's demands to their leaders at home, it would incite insurrection. Yet if they opposed the president, it would clearly mean death. Archbishop Detherow read their thoughts and rose to address the group. My esteemed council members, please allow me to apprise you of the reality of the situation. President Christopher has not made his decision in a vacuum. He and I both serve an immensely powerful master who stands invisibly above us all. He has single-handedly wrested this earth from God, and ever since the beginning, he has fought to solidify his rule over it. For the past 2,000 years, his primary opposition has been Christians. Now that the church has been virtually wiped off the planet, our dominance is almost complete. When we annihilate the Jews, the entire earth will belong to us. Tethero paused and scanned the room. Every eye was on him. Whether you know it or not, each of you also serves this master. The number you bear marks you as his. And because you serve him, you need not fear waging this war. We have powerful allies beyond anything you can imagine, an invisible army of his loyal angels. Even as we speak, they are orchestrating our moves and strategy. If we serve our master wholeheartedly, he will give us certain victory. A tentative voice spoke from the back. But he did not give us victory in our previous war. That's because we had division among us, those traitors who were just removed from our presence, Christopher said. Their fate should remind you that there is a penalty for disloyalty. And that penalty can be even worse than what you just witnessed, Detherow added. Our dark master always breaks the tools that fail him. And let me assure you, you do not want to be one of those failed tools. Judas Christopher immediately began to build his coalition army. In the months that followed, his military might grew as troops, arms, and munitions were brought in from countries around the world. However, Russia, China, and Egypt, along with some of their client states, refused to contribute troops or supplies. When the president received the news about the dissenters, he was irate. After we drown every Jew in the Dead Sea, we will freeze every Russian in Siberia. To make up for the absence of these forces, Christopher doubled the quota of troops and arms from the other nations. At first, the overextended governments were slow to respond, but eventually they were won over through threats, intimidation, and stiff sanctions. Before the year came to a close, the president had amassed the largest army assembled in recorded history. 
His troops numbered in the millions, backed by a state-of-the-art arsenal and staggering fleets of armored vehicles, warplanes, and naval vessels. The president, aware of the undercurrent of rebellion running through many nations, replaced three-quarters of the country's native generals with leaders of his own choosing. Then he announced that he himself would be the supreme commander over the combined forces. With the armies assembled, Christopher began to send troops and weaponry into Israel. More than 30 aircraft carriers were stationed offshore along Israel's Mediterranean coast. He landed his ground troops near the port cities of Haifa, Hadira, Netanya, Tel Aviv, and Ashdod, and brought in troops, tanks, rocket launchers, and heavy artillery from the east. Israeli troops met the invasions with little resistance. The beleaguered nation was vulnerable after the triple blow of ill-advised disarmament, the invasion by Russia and Egypt, and the cleanup effort after the war and the simultaneous natural disasters. It had taken Israel seven months just to bury all the bodies. Christopher quickly captured Herzliya, a coastal city just north of Tel Aviv, and set up his operational headquarters there. He was in the war room with his generals, orchestrating their march toward Jerusalem when a loud knock rattled the door. A Marine colonel burst in. Sir, pardon the interruption, but we just received an urgent intelligence report. Well, spit it out, Christopher demanded. Russia and Egypt have rebelled. They are... That is old news, Colonel. You'd better have a better excuse than that for disrupting this meeting. Yes, Mr. President, there is more. Russia has been raising their own army, an enormous coalition amassed from former USSR client states. They are now marching against us from the north. Egypt and its allies have also raised coalition armies, and they are coming at us from the south. Where are they now? Our reports confirm that the Russian Axis is crossing the Golan Heights and pushing southward. The Egyptian coalition is encamped on the Sinai Peninsula, and they are moving north at a rapid pace. Judas Christopher slammed his fist under the table, rattling coffee cups and water glasses. Our attack on Jerusalem will have to wait, he growled. Cancel the air raid immediately. We need to squash these insurgents. We'll divide our armies, one to meet the Russian allies and one to meet the Egyptian coalition. But I swear by the fires of hell, we will return to Jerusalem. The generals and their staffs worked through the night, revising battle plans and communicating new orders to their field officers. The president paced around the room, fuming, barking orders, and countermanding his generals' tactics while cursing them for their incompetence. The next morning, Christopher's northern armies met the Russian allies at Tel Megiddo on the plain of Esdralon. His southern divisions met the Egyptian coalition at the city of Beersheba at the edge of the Negev Desert. With their massive air power, ground forces, and artillery, the armies could not be contained within the two narrow fronts. Soon they were clashing in scores of theaters over the entire length and breadth of Israel, from the Golan Heights in the north to the Gaza Strip in the south. As the battles raged, Christopher and his staff generals kept their eyes locked on a floor-to-ceiling monitor in the war room. A map of Israel filled the screen, displaying all the nation's cities and topographical features. Scores of bright disks the size of checkers dotted the map from top to bottom. Green dots signified Christopher's troops, yellow dots marked the Russians, and blue dots stood for Egypt and its allies. As intelligence reports came in, the dots moved electronically from one area to another. Mr. President, the colonel burst into the room again. His face was ashen and his voice urgent. I have terrible news, sir. What is it? We've just learned that China has also raised an army, and it's twice the size of the combined armies we are now battling. How many troops are there? Estimates are in the millions, but that's not the worst of it, the colonel paused. 
Well, don't just stand there. Let's hear it. They're coming at us from the northeast. They've just crossed the dry bed of the Euphrates at Ar-Raqqa. Their planes and rockets are already bombarding the Golan Heights, and their ground troops will reach the border by morning. The veins in Christopher's neck pulsed. Why am I just now hearing this? A force that size can hardly be hidden. You should have known about this army the moment it left China. But, sir, you instructed us to focus all our attention on military movements in Israel. You can hardly expect to... Enough! Christopher bellowed. He turned to his aide. Take this man out and have him shot. I will not tolerate this kind of incompetence in my army. Turning his attention back to the map, Christopher saw a cluster of orange dots added to the map that pinpointed the location of the Chinese armies. For the next several months, the president and his military officials watched the colored dots cluster, disperse, and reassemble in a kaleidoscope of patterns as the four coalitions maneuvered in battle. Cities were lost and taken. Ground troops met head-on in deserts, woods, plains, and mountains across the entire country. As the battles raged, there wasn't a single square foot in the entire nation where the sounds of war could not be heard. The atmosphere was polluted by the roar of fighter planes, the explosion of bombs and rockets, the booms of heavy artillery, and the staccato bursts of handheld weapons. The worst sounds of all were the agonized screams of the dying and wounded, both military and civilian. The mood in Christopher's war room oscillated between euphoria and despair as Christopher and his staff watched their armies advance and retreat again and again. But slowly the advances began to outnumber the retreats, and the green dots began to dominate central Israel. The yellow, blue, and orange dots were soon relegated to the far reaches of the country. Feeling assured of victory, Christopher called a meeting of his generals at the conference table in front of the electronic screen. Gentlemen, look at the map. My forces now have the upper hand throughout central Israel. We have pushed the northern rebels back almost to Lake Tiberias, and the southern rebels have been forced to northern Sinai. He turned to look at the archbishop. You know what this means, don't you, Deathrow? Of course. It means you can now redeploy enough troops to accomplish your original goal, the final destruction of Jerusalem. Precisely. Generals, listen to me. Take half the troops stationed between Netanya in the north and Hebron in the south and march them toward Jerusalem. Before they arrive, my Air Force and Navy planes will weaken the city with bombs. When they're done, the invasion itself will be little more than a casual stroll through the city streets. How do you want your forces deployed, sir? The generals had long since learned not to devise their own strategies. I want half of them to take Jerusalem from the north and half from the south. We will set up our field headquarters in Bethlehem, five miles south of the city, and launch the attack from Mount Olivet. I will direct the southern invasion myself. Once we have moved into the city, the northern forces will close in and cut off all escape routes. On reaching Bethlehem, Christopher and his generals met in an old warehouse. They could hear continual bursts of bombshells coming from the direction of Jerusalem. Gentlemen, the president began, his eyes flashing with glee. Tomorrow we will launch our final campaign against Jerusalem from the very town that was once revered by Christians as the birthplace of our archenemy. Do you see the irony of it? We are about to accomplish what the ancient King Herod could not. 
He tried to destroy the Messiah by slaughtering all the baby boys in this city. And here we are, poised to undo everything that surviving child did by destroying the very nation he came to save. Damon Detherow laughed, baring his teeth in a grotesque grin. It will be the end of this enemy nation that our master has tried to annihilate for centuries, gloated Christopher. After tonight's air blitz, our ground troops will march in and plunder the city the way a child gathers Easter eggs. The next morning, President Christopher personally led his troops toward the undefended Jerusalem. Dethero usually stayed behind within the protected field camps, but on this day, Christopher insisted that the archbishop accompany him. I want you to witness firsthand this pivotal moment in history, he said. The nighttime blitz had accomplished its purpose. Oily black smoke billowed in columns throughout the city. Christopher reached Mount Olivet and positioned his troops for the invasion. He stood on top of the mountain, savoring the moment before giving the signal to attack. In seconds, he would have the satisfaction of watching the city suffer its final blow. Suddenly, a resounding trumpet blast shattered the air. Startled, Christopher looked around for its source. When he saw his troops gaping upward in terror, he followed their gaze. The sight struck him speechless. The morning sky had pulled away like drawn curtains, revealing a mighty warrior astride a magnificent white horse. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and on his head was a crown glittering with gold and gems. He held a sword in his mouth that flashed brightly in the sun. When Christopher managed to peel his eyes away from the man, he saw an enormous army of men and women in the clouds behind him. They were robed in white, and they, too, were mounted on white horses. The entire sky from east to west was filled with masses of magnificent beings, human-like, but with faces as brilliant as lightning. The entire throng hovered expectantly, as if ready to descend. It never occurred to Christopher that his state-of-the-art armies should easily defeat the antiquated armies above him. The heavenly force was mounted on horses, which ought to have been useless against his modern weaponry, except for the sword, an utterly outdated weapon, in the mouth of their leader. The host above was neither armed nor dressed for battle. But in that moment, Christopher could not think. He could only feel. And what he felt was abject, immobilizing fear. All at once, an angel with all the brightness of the rising sun stepped forward. In a voice that rang through the heavens, he summoned the great birds of the earth to Israel, inviting them to a bountiful feast consisting of the flesh of the fallen enemies of God. Vultures began to flock in such multitudes that they darkened the sky. They covered the entire land, alighting anywhere they could. Fences, rooftops, trees, walls, communication towers, and billboards. From their perches, they hungrily scanned the armies occupying Israel, awaiting the coming slaughter. With a loud shout, the magnificent warrior and his hosts descended. Archbishop Dethero, standing beside Christopher, was the first to realize who the descending warrior was. Unable to stand, the archbishop fell on his face, wailing in terror and covering his head with his hands. 
Judas Christopher, now trembling violently, proceeded toward Jerusalem, urged onward by his hatred for the Jews and his fear of his master. None of his troops followed, though. Dethero, crying and mumbling hysterically, half-crawled, half-slithered along behind him. Suddenly, Christopher stopped short and collapsed to his knees. Directly in his path stood the towering figure of the mighty heavenly warrior mounted on his white steed. His eyes burned into Christopher's soul like a white-hot laser. Christ dismounted, took the sword formed from the words of his mouth, and gazed down at Christopher. The Antichrist crumpled to the ground beside the quaking Dethero. Then the ground began to roll with a sickening movement, like that of a storm-tossed ship. A rumble came from somewhere deep in the earth. It grew in force until Christopher, feeling as if his head would split, clapped his hands over his ears. Just when the noise became unbearable, Mount Olivet cracked apart at its peak. Then a gap opened into a crumbling chasm all the way from Jerusalem to Jericho. In the next moment, white-clad beings seized Christopher and Dethero and hurled them screaming into the chasm. Their shrieks ceased abruptly when a thunderous belch issued from the pit, followed by billows of black, rancid smoke. Christ, with sword still in hand, remounted his steed and forged into the thick of Christopher's troops, swinging his deadly weapon in sweeping arcs. As the armies fell before him, he rode on, slashing tanks, transport vehicles, artillery, and entire military installations. In his wake, he left heaps of twisted steel, crumbled bricks, and splintered planks. He swept the sword upward, and warplanes burst into flame before crashing to the earth. Once Christopher's armies were decimated, Christ galloped toward the other battlefronts. Before the sun set, the combatants on all the battlefields of Israel lay dead, strewn across the landscape in mammoth heaps. Blood flowed like rivers through dry gullies and formed crimson pools in low-lying fields. The horde of ravenous birds had already begun their grisly feast. The throngs of angels ascended back into heaven as Christ returned victorious to Mount Olivet. The joyous, white-robed saints gathered around him and lined the road before him, paving the way from the mountain to Jerusalem's Zion Gate with a thick carpet of palm fronds. The air rang with joyful shouts as Christ made his second triumphal entry into his holy city, this time not mounted on a humble donkey colt, but on a great white horse, and this time he was not there to suffer but to rule. The scripture behind the story. In Can you hear me now? Uh, hey, Matt, I think we're, the battery's about dead, so if you want, want to grab some batteries, I don't know if it'll last all the time, but the, um, we have a lot of scripture to read. Before I get to it, though, I did get a note that um, someone has left their lights on, Ford Escape, with the uh, harvest 
Christian Academy sticker on it. If your lights are inside, lights are on. So if that's you, you might want to make your way out there. <laughs> All right. I only know of one family that has kids at Harvest Christian Academy. Oh, hey, John. How you doing? <laughs> oh, anyways. I don't know where to go from here. We have a lot of scripture. That's what I was saying to read. And so I went ahead and got them on the, on the screen for us because I did not think that you would be able to turn quickly enough. Uh, how many of you remember when you used to go to Sunday school and have the sword drills? Anybody like expert at sword drills? All right. We could do that, I guess, if we wanted to. That'd be fun. Um, I hate to ask this question. Anybody ever cheat while you were doing sword drills? Got one. Do I hear two? Two. All right. I only ask because I assumed some of you would. I, I would never stoop so low. So that was pretty bad. I never mind. All right. So let's uh, turn to Revelations 19. And we'll go ahead and read Revelations 19 and uh, really go through most of what we listen to tonight is found in Revelation 19. And then, like I said, we'll have a lot of. Scripture will run through your outline um, as you as you turn there. Also, got a, a message this evening to pray for. Uh, if you uh, know Ralph and Becky Doan, Becky Doan is uh, put on hospice today. So many of you will know them from a long time ago. They were missionaries in Hong Kong. Is that is that where they were? They've been back in Texas for a long time, but um, she's been on hospice uh, recently. So pray for them and and their children, and and obviously for her husband. Um, Revelations 19, verse starting in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his, his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with robe, dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on his white horses. Oh, yeah, they're the double A. Sorry, I, I forgot to tell you on your way out. I was wondering what you were going to show up with. All right. His eyes, I think we're in verse 12. Is that where we're at? No. 15, thank you. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations, and he himself will rule them with a wrought iron. He himself treads the winepresses of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Verse 17, Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of the heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them and the flesh of all the people, free and slave, both small and great. It's a, a gruesome picture there he's depicting in it. Verse 19, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth. And, and this would be reference if you've been walking through this with this uh, beast here. It's the beast of the seas uh, or the, the Antichrist. So verse 19 again, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet. So again, there the first verse 20 there mentions the beast against the beast of the seas. And then it mentions the false prophet, which, as we were going through the study, was termed as the beast of the earth. So the false prophet, who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast, 
those who worshipped his, uh, his image. These two were cast alive in a lake of fire burning with brimstone. And the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Um, and so as we walk through this, uh, of course, uh, uh, one of the things we've, we've talked a lot about um, the, the reason to study Revelation, there's a lot of reasons to study, and, and uh, as I mentioned, some of you who've uh, been anxious to be here every Wednesday night and, and be a part of it, there's some of you I know that uh, you can't get enough of end-time studies, and there's some of you in here that are like, when is this series ever going to end, all right? And, uh, and I would probably lend, be more to this person that says, when is this series ever going to end, right? And that's pretty bad if you're the one teaching it. But anyways, one of the reasons to study the book of the Revelations is it's encouraging. It's, it's a reminder that God is in control and that even though um, your world oftentimes, I'm sure, seems chaotic. Um, and if you look in the world today, our world is very chaotic, isn't it? Um, and, and the truth is, if, if you are a student of Scripture, then you realize that um, there, right? All right, here we go. And, and so to think that we shouldn't be surprised that the world is in a mess, because uh, that's what the Bible says is going to happen, right? Things are going to grow worse and worse, right? And, um, and, and so when we think about the end time here, and specifically we're talking about here in Revelation 19, when, when Jesus had his second coming, so sometimes there's some confusion on uh, so the first coming, obviously, is what we're about to celebrate at Christmas, and he came to the earth, and he became flesh and dwelt among us as it was prophesied. The second coming, then, is um, not to be confused with the rapture. And so what we believe Scripture teaches is that the, the rapture is the next event on the, uh, the calendar, the end times calendar. That's the next event. And so that's what's described there in Thessalonians when, when those believers who are still left on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet him in the air. And so we will meet the Lord in the air. So technically will not be his second coming because we're going to him. Um, and so this, the second coming, is what we're looking at today. And when he comes the second time, so on your, kind of a little ahead of myself, but on your paper on the back there, and it kind of has the, the two side by side, the, the first coming of Christ and then also the second coming of Christ. And so um, sometimes it's, it's confusing to think. So um, we're now waiting for the rapture. The rapture, when it takes place, will begin what's known as the seven-year period of tribula tribulation, uh, three and a half years of peace that as you've been in this study, we've, we've kind of walked through that. And then after that three and a half years, of peace, then we're going to have utter chaos, right? And that's this when World War III, or if there's not a World War III before this, uh, is when Jesus comes for a second coming and he's going to take care of everyone. Um, and, and so that's kind of where we are. And so let's walk through some of these scriptures as we, as we walk through um, the outline. So Revelations uh, 19.11 says, When I saw, we, we just read this, but now I saw heaven open and behold a white horse, he who said on him was called faithful and true, and in righteous he judges and makes war. 
And some people will, um, and, and this is really a, I won't get deep into these weeds here, but uh, a, a big movement now with a lot of uh, liberal theology is that if, if God is good, then he's, then he's not a, then this can't be true, that God is going to be a just, righteous judge. And, and I would say the flip side is that if, if he is a just and righteous God, then he has to punish sin. There has to be a punishment for sin. And in fact, that's what he said in the beginning, right? When he created Adam and Eve, he said, if you sin, you shall surely what? Die. So the punishment for sin, dying without Christ, has always been there. Um, and, and, and then another flip side of that is that if, if God allowed sin to continue without judging it, could we classify him as a good God? And I would say no. Um, and, and so the, the reality is, so when we get to this point, remember what we've studied is we're seven years into this, the tribulation period. We're seven years from the rapture when he's taken the believers. But um, nowhere in Scripture are we promised currently what, what we live now in what we call um, the day of grace or the age of the church. Okay, we're living under the grace of God currently, and we have the ability, because of the grace of God, to have salvation. Um, and nowhere in Scripture does it necessarily say, from where we are now until the rapture, known as the day of grace, that we're going to have a worldwide revival. When, when is the mention in Scripture for the next big revival? It's going to be during this tribulation period. And so you see, even the mercy of God, prior in this seven-year period, God is going to do everything he can to call people to himself. And that's what we've studied. We spent a week on the two witnesses, right? And, and Dave preached the message on the two witnesses. And then we talked about the 144,000 witnesses. And God's going to do everything he can. And in Scripture, the next major worldwide revival that you see that's going to take place is going to be in the tribulation period. And so God is a God of grace, but also God is a just God. And because he's a just and holy, righteous God, he has to punish sin. And that's what we're going to see. In the end, um, you know, there's uh, love does win because love is just. Okay, and I'll, I won't get any deeper into that, all right? Uh, the priority of his return, as you look on the outline, and I won't take time to read it. It's been a little longer there talking than I intended. But um, how many times in Scripture it talks about the return of Christ um, and then uh, we read Matthew 24, verse 30. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Again, a, different from the first appearing of Christ, right? He became lowly in the stable, humble and meek, here with power and great glory. Uh, point number two there on your outline, and there's, um, several different prophecies that we're going to walk through those scriptures uh, real quick. Uh, the, the prediction, or really the prophecy of his return. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28 says, um, and I'd encourage you to write these down, uh, that this one's not on your paper. Uh, Hebrews 9, 27 to 28. And, and it is appointed for man to die once, but after this, the judgment. So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. Again, the mention of his second coming. So let's walk through these. Uh, and the, te- uh, the text is, is written there for you, um, but, but I'll go ahead and read it for us. So first one that we see prophesying 
uh, is, is in the book of Jude, and Jude is quoting uh, Enoch. And so Jude 1, verses 14 through 15 says, Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly among them of all the ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. All right? And so then Daniel, uh, Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 through 14. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and he brought him near before him. Then to him who was given dominion and glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. Again, uh, Zechariah, right? Zechariah 14, verses 3 through 4. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day his feet will stand on the mount of olives, which face Jerusalem on the east. And the mount of olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. And then Jesus, when he, uh, what we know as the Olivet Discourse there in Matthew chapter 24 um, he also prophesies of his coming again. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then again, in part of the same message in Matthew 24, verse 29 through 31, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man come in the clouds of heaven with power and great glory, and he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, and they will gather together as elect from the four winds from one end uh, of heaven to the other. Um, And so again, we're just walking through these. Uh, The next is angels that have prophesied. Uh, Remember in in Acts chapter 1, of course, one of the most familiar verses probably is Acts chapter 1, verse 8. When they were told to go to Jerusalem and wait, and you'll be witness of me in Judea, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Um, and then, remember, they're standing there watching the, as, as Christ is ascending into heaven. And uh, the angel appears to them in verse 11 here, Acts chapter 1, verse 11. It says, Who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus, who's taken up from you into heaven, will so come in like manner as you saw him go in to heaven. So again, the angels prophesied there at his ascension that he, there will be a second coming. Um, and then uh, Paul also in Second Thessalonians, and it says, And to give you who were troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire take vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. When he comes in that day to be glorified in the saints and to be admired among all those who believe, because our testimony among you uh, has believed. Um, and, and so then also the last one I think here on your outline is John, Revelation 1-7. Behold, he is coming with clouds. Every eye will see him, even they who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. And so the next one on your outline, number three, the place of his return. Anybody know where that's going to be, the place of his return? 
Not America. Good answer. What else? <laughs> Somebody said it, I think. I know all of us, right? All right, Zechariah 14, verse 4. And that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east. The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half of the mountain shall move toward the north and half toward the south. We read verse 11 already, but let's read verse 12 again. This is uh, the angel speaking. It says, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey. So where he left, he will what? Return, all right, in the same manner as, as the angel said. Um, all right, and then Matthew 24, uh, 36. But of that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, but my Father only. So, do we know when the Lord's return will be? Okay, according to Scripture, no, all right? So if someone tells you they do, then it's not according to Scripture, right? And so probably you probably shouldn't believe them, right? Can you shake your head yes at me? All right, very good. All right, the preparation of his return. Revelations 19, 19. And I saw the beasts, the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. And, and I don't know about you, but when I read the scripture and then really actually hearing him describe all that, uh, it makes my mind really play the imagery. And to think about this battle, you know, think of all the uh, the movies that you've watched depicting all these wars and battle, and it won't even compare to the power that we see Jesus display. Does, does that kind of blow your mind to think about that, to think of how powerful Christ is and that he will set everything straight? Um, and, and again, it brings um, really two things in the forefront of my mind, and that is I'm glad I'm on Jesus' side. Uh, and two is, I want everyone to be on Jesus' side. You know, it's, it's one thing for us to sit here and kind of get excited about God's going to set everything straight, and everyone's going to receive justice, and, and, uh, and we're going to watch it. We're going to see His power and His glory and His might and, and, and kind of get excited about that. But, but really, and that's okay, but it should also stir a different emotion in us, right? That that's real people that will die. And at that moment, that's, that's, that's it for them. It's, it's their first and second death right at, at once, right? And, and to think that God has given us the responsibility, but also the opportunity to tell people about him. And, and, and to me, that's the greatest, uh, I feel like, at least for me personally, the greatest benefit of studying Revelation is that it's encouraging to know I'm on the winning side, but also challenged to know that there's a lot of people that aren't, right? And according to Scripture, more that are not on the winning side than are. And... He's given us, as believers, the responsibility to tell people, hadn't he? And so, I, again, the encouragement that we're on the winning side, but then the challenge is not everybody is. Uh, number five there, the portrayal of his return. And again, a lot of these verses are what we've already read, but 19, Revelation 19.11, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. He who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. 
And, and don't you love those words, the descriptive words there, faithful and true? Uh, have you found, found out for yourself, I mean, you can read it in Scripture, but have you found out for yourself that Jesus is faithful and true? And uh, he, he's, he's always been faithful to you, hasn't he? Has, has Christ ever let you down? No. He may not answer you like you want. I get that. But, but he's always faithful and true. Again, uh, following this portrayal of his return, Revelations 19, 12 to 13. Again, we've read it just describing his eyes were like a flame of fire and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the Word of God. Where else do we see in Scripture Jesus called uh, the Word of God? We're at Genesis. Where else? John, right? In the beginning was the Word, right? And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, right? So again, a reference to specifically to Jesus as who is speaking of. Um, and then it goes on uh, there on your outline talking about his names, Revelations uh, 19, 16. Uh, on, on his thigh was, was written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Other references here, Isaiah, can you guys read that? I don't know how big that was. All right, Isaiah 45, 23. I swore by myself, the word has gone out of my mouth in righteousness and shall not return, that to me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall take an oath. Romans 14, 11, for it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. Philippians 2, 10 through 11, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone, everyone will eventually bow to the name of Jesus. Some willingly and some not willingly. And, and it's our responsibility to tell people that, isn't it? How they can willingly bow the knee to Christ. Um, and then it goes real quickly, his eyes, Revelations 19.12, which we, again, have already read. Um, his eyes were like a flame of fire. Revelations 1, verse 14, his head and his hair were like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Do you, do you think that uh, <clears throat> that will be a fierce picture when you see Jesus coming through the clouds? Uh, it's interesting, and in, uh, I guess I've never really thought about it, but in, the, in this um, audio we listened to, the dramatization about it, thinking about that um, the army, you know, Jesus has a sword on a horse, right? Like, and it mentioned in the audio here about how outdated his weaponry was, and yet uh, the leader, the Antichrist, it, it didn't even fathom in his mind that, uh, hey, I have all these missiles and state-of-the-art uh, weaponry. Why? Because Jesus was in His presence, and and uh, Jesus is all powerful. And to think of the fear that will be on Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet. Um, it mentions there um, His crowns. Um, Revelation nineteen twelve. Again, we've already read that. Um, and then Hebrews uh, nineteen twenty two, referencing His robe. And according to the, uh, and again, so we talk about um, the robe here, um, and and what was uh, mentioned on his robe, or what was on his robe, the bloodstain. What is that a reference to? 
right? It's the shed blood of Christ. And most often in Scripture, um, the, the blood was for the shedding. The shedding of blood was for what? The remission of sins, right? Um, Roman, Revelation 13, 8 says the, the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So again, the, the robe dipped in blood is just a reference to the sacrifice that was made for us to have forgiveness of sins, which again reference here in Hebrews 9, 22. Uh, number six then, the people of his return. Revelations 19, 14, it says, uh, And the arms of heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Zechariah, the Lord my God, will come, and all the saints with you. Uh, Jude 1, 14, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints. First Thessalonians 3, and the coming of the Lord Jesus with all his saints. And, and so again, this, the armies, this plural here, is the Old Testament saints, the New Testament saints, the tribulation saints, and then also referencing the angels of the Lord with him. Um, number seven, the purpose of his return. Uh, Revelation 19.11, which is not on the screen, says, in righteous he judges and makes war. So his purpose in coming is to set things right, isn't it? It's to execute justice. Uh, and again, as we've read, righteous justice, or justice through righteousness. Um, Revelations 19.15 says, Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations. He himself, or Jesus, will rule them with a rod iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of wrath of Almighty God. The next one, Jude 14, and, uh, verses 14 and 15 Again, we read already, but let's look at verse 15 here. It says, To execute judgment on all, to convict all who are ungodly, among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have committed in an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. And so Christ will return to judge the ungodly. Can, can you just think of the... It's, it's going to be a horrific scene, isn't it? Um, and again, the, the scene, uh, the picture of what we read in Scripture should, again, challenge us to tell people, to share the gospel. Um, number nine here, the penalty of his return. And it seems like every week we end on uh, these verses here, right? Revelations uh, 19, 19 through 21. Uh, let's read 17 through 18, I guess, first. I'm get ahead of myself. The punish, I didn't do punishment. That's why I was ahead of myself, right? The punishment is return. Again, I think uh, go hand in hand with the penalty. But Revelation 19, 17 through 18. Then I saw an angel stand in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of, of heaven, Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. Verse 21, and the rest were killed with a sword, which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Again, a pretty gruesome picture, isn't it? Revelations 19, 19 through 21, and I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, the armies gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive in a lake of fire, burning with a brimstone, and the rest were killed with a sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh. 
Again, just the power of God should, it should put fear in us, shouldn't it? To know that God one day at the second coming of Christ will judge the earth. And I'm thankful that as a believer in Christ that I don't face that. And that should not, again, we've, we've seen like over and over we go over this. And, and to me, again, it's the, one of the greatest reasons to, sh- to study the book of Revelation is that it should challenge me to share my faith. Um, knowing Jesus is the greatest gift, is it not? It, it's the greatest thing that can happen. It's, it, I'm, I assume you'll all agree it's the greatest thing that ever happened in your life. The moment you surrender your life to Christ and you knew that you had salvation. And yet, it, and again, it still blows my mind in my own life how, how I can, when I think of the moment I finally gave my life to Christ, if, if I allow myself to think on it and dwell on it, it always brings emotions into my life of, of thankfulness and joy. And yet, I'm not sure why in my own life um, it doesn't push me to do more. Because it should. The, the, the gratitude I have for what God did in my life should always push me to do more for Him. Sh- shouldn't it? And yet, I'm not sure why. And, and I'm, I can't answer for you because I, I can't really answer it for myself. Why does it not push me to do more for Him? Because it should. Um, would you just close your eyes for a moment before we're dismissed? And I want you just to wrestle with that question. I'm tired of wrestling with it. I'll throw it to you, right? Wrestle with that, that question, that thought. How can I be so filled with emotion and gratitude? I hope you are anyways. I'm assuming this. When I think of my salvation, and yet how can I not, that emotion not move me to tell people? How do I, how, that doesn't seem possible. Just take a minute to pray about it. God, I thank you for this night. Lord, I thank you for allowing us, Lord, to have, have your word and the availability of your word. Lord, people all over the world um, struggle to find a Bible. And Lord, we have them on our phones and our iPads, our computers, and in print, and probably 10 at home. And so we thank you that we have access to your word, and Lord, that we have access to the gospel. Lord, many of us in this room, I'm sure, rejected the gospel multiple times. And yet people all over the world have never heard the gospel. And so, Lord, may we be grateful and thankful for the privilege of knowing you. And may that lead us, Lord, to um, share the gospel. 
and to be available to, to tell people about Christ. And Lord, we just, again, we thank you for all you've blessed us with and for the opportunity to be here tonight. Lord, I pray you would be with those of us who will be leaving tomorrow to go to Mexico. I pray you give us safety. Allow us to be a blessing uh, to those families and the children that we'll minister to. And again, Lord, we just ask for uh, safety. In your name we pray.